Jesus, we slow down to hear your voice. We can read the words on the page fast. We can get through them. We can talk about their theology. We can build applications. But over all of that, what we want to do is hear from you. We want to know the living word who is the power behind the written word. So we ask that your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our ears, moves our hearts and our hands and our feet, transforms our thinking, renews our spirits, clears our way, and strengthens our resolve. May we be more faithful to you who is always faithful to us. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. This morning, as we are studying the book of John, we are coming to probably the most familiar passage of the entire Bible. John chapter 3. Jesus' discussion with uh, Nicodemus. This is the passage, if you hear the, word, the phrase born again, this is the, fra- the passage it comes from. If you are familiar with John 3.16, Austin 3.16, any variations of the things that have 3.16, John 3.16 uh, is probably the most quoted and most memorized verse of the Bible. Uh, I guarantee that anyone that's been a Christian for more than about uh, 10 years has it so committed to heart Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, And uh, we are, it's so familiar. And yet I think that this passage has a lot to say to us that sometimes gets uh, gets buried. Um, And so we want to get into this passage, we want to dig into it. And we want to remember as we're looking at Jesus through John's eyes. Um, that, that John is making an argument for Jesus being the Son of God and that we should believe that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That is the purpose of John's gospel. It's what he's doing. Um, it's where he's going with all of this. And so he is, he is going to start compounding his arguments. And what John will do is he takes a word like the word sign, which we introduced a couple of weeks ago, and he will constantly keep bringing it up. And as he brings it up, he will turn it a little bit and he will give you a different facet of it. He will open your eyes a little bit to more of what it means. And we talked about two of Jesus' signs so far, that when he turned the water into wine, there were those that did not believe. Um, and, and, and then when, we, when he goes to the temple and he cleanses a temple, which we talked about last week, um, when Jesus cleanses that temple, he does that. It's a messianic sign. It's, it's known this is what the Messiah is going to do. And yet the religious leaders, which John calls the Jews, and I want to make sure you understand, when John says the Jews, he's not talking about all Jewish people. He's talking about the leaders of the Jews. All right, the, the religious leaders. It's his shorthand for the religious leaders. And they come to him and they confront him. And at the end of chapter 2, we get this line. Chapter 2 and verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew 
what was in man. In other words, Jesus said, John says Jesus was reluctant to uh, accept everybody just saying they believed because they needed to get deeper. And we, we read earlier that the Jews had said to Jesus, you know, what signs, in chapter 2 and verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus talks about destroying the temple. Well, now Jesus is going to take one of the leaders of those Jews. He's going to have a, a personal conversation with him. And it's a fascinating conversation. It's a very revealing conversation between these two very learned men. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here. Who Nicodemus is. The scriptures call him, John calls him, a ruler of the Jews. Now what that means is that this is a guy who you could not, if you, he was in the synagogue, you didn't get to sit down until he sat down in Moses' seat. There was a seat in the back of the synagogue where the, the most learned man would sit, and he would, sit, he would stand, everybody would be standing, milling around, talking, then they'd get ready, the rabbi is lining everybody up, and the person that's going to do the readings and all these things. But this learned man would come in, and he would stand in the back of the room, there was a seat, Moses' seat, and when he sat down, everybody else sat down, all the kids got ushered to the back, all the women had to be quiet, because the men are talking, um, and, uh, and, and basically, then you could begin your synagogue service. And so that's who he is. Nicodemus is a, a leader. He's a ruler. Um, he's a, a teacher. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, a lot of people make a big deal about this. Why did he come uh, at night? Oh, Nicodemus was sneaking in to see Jesus. I'm not sure that's true. Could you have possibly had a real conversation with Jesus during the day? I mean, the guy was mobbed all the time. He's got people, he's trying to heal people. He's got people begging for stuff. He's having all these conversations. Nicodemus wants to have a a mano y mano conversation with Jesus. He wants to test him. He wants to see for sure what Jesus is talking about. And then he comes in and he addresses Jesus as Ravi, as Rabbi. So immediately Nicodemus is putting Jesus on the same level as himself. He didn't have to do that. There was no rule that said to talk to Jesus, you had to call him rabbi, because most people don't. Some people call him Kyrie, which in, in Hebrew would have been Adani, my Lord, um, or, or my leader. Um, they, uh, they, they call him, sometimes they just call him Jesus. Um, sometimes they just call him, hey, you. Sometimes they don't even know who they're talking to. So he comes in and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. He says, we, we know that. All right? We're, we're aware that what you're doing is a divine thing. It's a God thing. We know what's going on. Because no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay? Now... doesn't ask Jesus a question. He just says, 
Rabbi, we know you're from God because nobody could do these signs unless God was with him. And then Jesus answers him, completely out of left field. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay. That's, I mean, that's the equivalent of you walking up to me and saying, uh, Eric, um, we love Bedford Road. And I looked at you and went, I need to buy socks. <laughs> this has nothing to do with what Nicodemus is asking him. Nicodemus is just, Nicodemus is walking up. He's like, let's have a conversation. And Jesus goes, okay, let's have a conversation. Here's where we're going to start. Unless you, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is not something Jewish teachers said. This born again thing is a brand new idea. No one's walking around telling people you need to be born again at this point. They might tell them you need to be Torah observant. You might tell them that you need to be righteous, that you need to be holy. They might tell you you need to follow God. They might tell you you need to repent for the kingdom of God is hand. You need to turn. But Jesus says to him, you've got to be born again. And you've got to imagine Nicodemus going, oh boy, here we go. We're going to play a game here. He's introducing a metaphor. Now, this is a Jewish thing where, where a rabbi would introduce a strange metaphor and all the other rabbis in the conversation, then they start to talk about it. They start to pick it apart. They start to analyze it. Today, we call it peer review. Um, all right, let's find all the ways that, that this is not accurate. You know, let's, let's talk about your illustration. Um, this, by the way, this is, this is what the Christians are still doing in the 4th century when they're trying to, to nail down how to express Christian doctrine. When we're talking about the doctrine of the, the, the deity of Christ and they're debating how should we express this. Somebody comes up with a solution. They say, well, you know, the nature of God, it's like the sun. The sun has heat. The sun has light. The sun is the sun. Right? And everybody's like, no, that's not a great way because one's an expression and, and one's a manifestation and one is a physical thing. And, and they, they're debating all of this stuff. So the Christians were doing this very much. Theology was born out of this rabbinical discussion. So Nicodemus says, oh, good, we're going to play this game. So Jesus says, truly, truly, verily, verily, or in, in Hebrew, he says, amin, amin, amen, amen. Um, that's what the word amen means. It means it is true. That's why when a preacher is preaching and he says something true, people in the South say amen. amen. All right, people in the North go amen. <laughs> um, or, you know, but, but in the, in the, it's kind of like, you know, arm raising. We get into this, so the difference between Southern arm raising and nor Northern arm raising. Jed was doing kind of a hybrid. He's doing the, the Colorado arm raising. That's one arm. Southern arm raising is both arms. New England arm raising is... Does anyone see me raising my arms? I don't want to distract anyone. All right. Um, so, so there's different expressions. But in the, in the, nor in, in, in the South, and, and where I grew up, I mean, you, you had preachers that just... My dad, if my dad's ever in a church service and somebody says something really good, he's got this weird look. Amen! It sounds like Mel Gibson on a bad day. I don't know... But, but that's what he does. But amen means true. It means it is true. And Jesus answered him. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. So he says, this is a true statement. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him in verse 4, oh, okay, here we go. So how can a man be born if he is old? 
All right, can he enter a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is going, okay, all right, I got a problem with this issue right off the bat. Here's the deal. You can't be born again. Once you're out, you're out. There's no going back. All right, and this is what Nicodemus is saying. He goes, he goes this, this metaphor, Jesus, it doesn't work, right? I mean, what are you talking about being a born again? Now, Nicodemus must have immediately known what Jesus was talking about. All right, in terms of this, but Nicodemus is going to challenge him. He's going to test him. He wants Jesus to be explicit. This, by the way, this is an important aspect of teaching. Actually, it's an important aspect of learning, right? So if, if all you ever do is just listen, 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 write down, write down, write down, write down, and never ask clarifying questions, you may not be understanding what the person is doing what they're trying to teach you. Because it's very easy for us to hear what we want to hear. We, we listen and we hear what we want to hear. Uh, we, we talk, my wife and I will often talk about um, uh, that, that there is a tendency in, in the church, and I don't mean Bedford Road, I mean the church at large, and there's a, it's a human tendency just in general, to hear something revolutionary in terms that make it comfortable for us. You know what I mean? We listen, and as we're listening, we go, oh, well, that's what he means is this. All right, this is what he means is this. Um, and, and we translate in our heads dynamically, we translate something that may not be familiar or easy to something that is familiar or easy. I remember the first time I got in a, uh, an actual car to drive a vehicle with a standard transmission. Now, how many of you know how to drive a stick? All right, fewer and fewer under the age of 25. You probably can't do it. How many of you done it in the last year? Okay, a couple. All right, um, so you get in the car to drive a stick. Well, when I was a kid, I worked on farms. I drove tractors, I drove lawnmowers, and I drove this 1960s international um, uh, uh, tr uh, pickup truck that had one of these. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That big, long stick. It was like a magic wand, right? And it, you can imagine 14-year-old me in with a bench seat, unadjustable bench seat into international pickup truck, trying to hit the clutch and the brake and getting this whole thing working. It was quite an adventure. So then I got in a standard transmission regular car. My, my, sister's, my sister had the Mercury version of the Ford Escort. Um, so how do you get worse than have a Ford Escort, have the Mercury knockoff of the Ford Escort? And it had a standard transmission. And I went, not a problem. I've been driving tractors. I've been driving this international truck. Not a problem. I can drive this thing. Good to go. I did okay with it. Then my dad said, okay, now you can drive my car. His car was a standard transmission diesel Volkswagen Rabbit. You do not shift diesel engines the way that you shift regular internal combustion gasoline engines. You've got to double clutch that bad boy. The ratios are different. Things are different. Get out of my car now. All right? I thought what I knew would translate well into a new context. I just took what I knew. And as my dad was trying to instruct me about this double clutching thing, my mom, by the way, she'll probably be watching this online, um, so she, she'll get mad at me because it's Father's Day, so she can't be that mad at me. 
Um, and, uh, but the, uh, she would take this diesel VW uh, B, uh, um, uh, rabbit and she would have that thing in third gear by the end of the driveway. <laughs> One day we were just waiting for the transmission to just drop out of the bottom of that thing. I mean, you do not shift like that. That's not how you drive. Um, but anyway, you take something you're familiar with, you hear something you're not familiar with, and you go, you go, okay, well, it's the same thing. But often it's not. Often it's not. The, the, and you have to ask questions to find out what it is they're actually saying. The, the details. And Jesus says, okay, this is, you must be born again. So Nicodemus immediately goes, okay, physical birth. Uh, see, gotcha, right there, right off the bat. All right, so uh, you can't be born again. Once you're old, you can't go back into your mother's womb. So there's the problem. And then Jesus says, because Jesus is a good teacher, Nicodemus asked the right question. I want you to know this. Nicodemus asked the right question. He says to Jesus, how can you do this? And then Jesus says, Jesus answered him, right? In verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. So he's confirming that what Nicodemus had answered is correct. He says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And people always want to debate, well, what does he mean by born of water? Some people want to say that's baptism. Uh, Jesus actually explains it, um, or possibly John explains it. Here's one of the issues with reading ancient Greek. There are no quotation marks. There's actually a quotation mark to begin a quote. There's not one to end the quote. So we don't know where Jesus actually stops talking. This might be John explaining what Jesus is saying in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So Jesus says to him, he says, well, listen, the physical birth, your fleshly birth, that's born of water. That's what he means. Jesus, it's clarified right in the text. I've seen commentaries go on for hundreds of pages about this. Sometimes the best commentator on Jesus' words, this is profound, is Jesus. All right? He seemed to have known what he's talking about. Maybe we just trust him a little bit. So Jesus says, you, you're, gonna be, you're all born of water. Anybody that's had a child born knows what he's talking about. Um, you've all been born of water, but you need to be born of the Spirit. The, the, now, the Greek word spirit is pneuma. The Hebrew word is ruach. In both of those languages, breath, spirit, wind, all the same word. Okay? It is that, that, that thing that animates what is not otherwise animated. It's the thing that makes stuff move. So, so when in Genesis chapter 1, and John leans heavily on Genesis for his imagery, in Genesis chapter 1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. And everybody reads that and they're kind of like, Oh, the Spirit of God, He hovered over the Spirit of the deep. That's not what it means. The Old Testament nerd in me gets nuts with that. The description of this, what it is, is God creates the world. There is water and God, His Spirit, He breathes across the surface of the water. And as the water ripples from His power, it becomes the created order of the universe. God breathes. 
In Genesis chapter 2, then God molds man out of the dust of the earth. The Hebrew word for dust is adamah. Um, the word for man is adam. He, says he creates man out of the dust and then he breathes into him the breath of life and man becomes a living soul. So now Jesus goes back and he says, look, you can be born of water, the first creation, and born of the spirit, the divine work, the divine creation. And they are different. Now, there's a couple of implications of this. Number one, it means nobody is born a Christian. You're not born of water slash spirit. You are born water and spirit. They're distinct. You are born physically, but then there comes a time where you must be born spiritually. There comes a time when you must believe in Jesus. Just because you go to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to a gym makes you fit. I can eat Twinkies in a gym all day long. It's not going to give me a six-pack. A keg. Capri Sun. Anyway. Beanbag. Anyway, uh, unless one is, my father used to always say, there's muscle underneath. <laughs> I, I used to say, it's insulated for your protection. Doesn't make any sense, but it was funny. All right, anyway. Verse, we are way off topic. Jesus said, truly, truly, unless, unless you be born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's the difference between this statement and the statement he just made? The previous statement he said, unless you're born again, you cannot see. Now he says, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter. He says, now, first of all, you can't enter something you don't see how to get into. He says, but now he's saying, look, you're missing the point when all you're talking about is the physical. When all you're talking about your physical birth, you're missing the spiritual birth. He said, do not marvel. I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I love this detail from John because guess when the wind blows in Israel? At night. The, the, because Israel is such a dry climate and it's got the Mediterranean Ocean, uh, Mediterranean Sea to its west, when the night comes and the temperature drops, because Israel is basically a desert, it's like San Diego without SeaWorld, when, when, when the weather drops, when the, night, when the sun goes down, there is immediately sweeping winds that blow through. And so I picture Jesus and Nicodemus up on the roof of a house, because that's where you go at night, because that's where it's cool, sitting on the roof of the house, and the wind is blowing. It's blowing the leaves of the trees in the courtyard. It's blowing the, the, the rugs and, and carpets and things that are on the roof. They're moving, and Jesus says, just like the wind. Because it's just like the wind. Now, at this point, if I'm Nicodemus, I'm going, this guy is good. What an argument he's making here. You must, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. Because look at what Nicodemus asks 
The next question, what does he ask? How can these things be? Now, this is the amazing thing about what Jesus has done with Nicodemus. He has backed Nicodemus into a corner with just two answers where there is absolutely no physical answer for what Jesus has just done. He has argued Nicodemus completely out of the idea that he can reason his way into faith. He has backed him in a quarter, gotten rid of any possible way that Nicodemus could say, uh, salvation is by my observance, by my behavior, by my birth. He goes, by the way, this knock, you gotta, you're born of the water and born of the flesh. He's saying, just because you're a Jew does not mean you're in the kingdom of God. You see what he did? Just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you a member of the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. Forget about entering it because it's about the spirit. And the spirit is something you don't see. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus turns it on. How did Nicodemus talk to Jesus at the beginning? He said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from Verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus came to Jesus thinking he was speaking to a peer. He's just discovered he's speaking to his superior. You call me teacher and you think you're a teacher? Truly, truly, Verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. He's just using a regular example. He's saying, look, you can only testify about what you've experienced. I don't judge you for that, but you do not receive our testimony. I know the reality of the spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. If I told you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, again, going back to that physical birth, wind, all of those things. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And now Jesus puts it all out there. Now remember this line. Remember this line back in verse 22, uh, verse, uh, verse 24. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Here he is entrusting himself to Nicodemus. He says, okay, Nicodemus, here we are. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you who I am. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is birth the beginning of? Life. Now we know life begins in the womb, conception. But we, we count, we don't start your birthday from date of conception, behind, beside the fact that would be really hard. We do it from the day of birth, right? We celebrate it from the day of birth. It's a shorthand. Jesus knew all the way he was coming to this life thing. He started with this birth metaphor because he wanted to hit this life thing. But look at what he says there. Look at his language. He says, no one has ascended into heaven. He goes, I've, I've explained to you earthly things 
and you're having trouble with those, and I'm explaining to you heavenly things, and you're really having trouble with those, and the reason that you're having trouble is you can't ascend to heaven. It's the one who descends that tells you the reality, the Son of Man. And I picture Nicodemus at that moment having to make a choice. He has to choose. Jesus has given him no further option. Jesus doesn't give Nicodemus a multiple choice. He's like, okay, Nicodemus, here's the deal. Um, you can choose to treat me. You can choose to view me in a very, various and assorted ways. You can, you can view me as just a, a nice teacher. You can teach me, view me as a moral leader. You could view me as a, a, very, a very good Jew. Um, you could view me as, you know, kind of a guru. Uh, you could view me as a hero, or, uh, like a revolutionary. You could view, view me as a healer or a physician. No, Jesus just goes ahead and goes... Who do you think you're talking to? The only person that can tell you what goes on in heaven is somebody who's descended from heaven. Guess what? Guess who I am? And Nicodemus has to make a choice. Am I going to accept him as who he says he is? Uh, C.S. Lewis once popularized the idea that Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. He said, because, look, the things that Jesus said, either he was completely crazy, he was a liar, or he was the Son of God. There's only three options. People say, well, Jesus is a good moral teacher. Good moral teacher, but if he's lying, do we trust lying moral teachers? I mean, aside from actors. Um, you know, do we, do, I mean, obviously what Jesus is saying, he's not a good moral teacher if his motivation is something that isn't true. So either what he says is true or he is not worth following. Either what he says is true or he's not worth following. Jesus is not afraid of questions. Nicodemus is not afraid to ask them. Jesus sets up a situation. He actually uses a situation from, uh, from uh, the Exodus where the people of Israel were being attacked by serpents because they were being stupid again. And God had to spare them again. And so God had Moses build a, a bronze serpent. A bronze in Hebrew, by the way, is Nehush. Serpent is Nehushtan. So in Hebrew, it's got this great double word where a bronze serpent is Nehush Nehushtan. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and he builds a serpent. Anybody that looks at the serpent can be saved. Why? Jesus pulls that image and he just goes, because the one who is lifted up is the one who has descended. Now he's picturing his crucifixion. And John knows that now because he's writing well after Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. He says, I must be lifted up. That metaphor will come back again, by the way, in the book of John. Now comes the famous verse. Ironically, I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on the famous verse as I just did on the rest of it. Now, I, happen to, I would not take a bullet for this, but I happen to believe that verse 16 to verse 21 is John explaining what Jesus meant. So now, if you're reading a red-letter Bible and you get to verse 16, it's still red. Um, but just so you know, Originally, John did not pull out a red pen to write the words of Jesus. Those are all added by the publisher. They're a best guess. Okay? 
Um, for God so loved the world that he gave, uh, now the English Standard verse says, Version says he gave his only son. Uh, the word is monogeno. Um, it does not mean just only. It means singularly born. That's why the old King James translated as the only begotten. They actually just took the Greek word, heno, and they turned it into the word begotten. They just found a word that sounded simpler, similar. It was one of those cases where they took a word that nobody really knew what it meant and charged it with a meaning so that it could, then people knew what the Greek meant. Um, and, and, of course, nobody, knows, nobody walks around talking about begotting children now, so it doesn't really work for us anymore. But anyway, he says, He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He did not descend all right, to knock us further down, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He says, in other words, God doesn't need to condemn you. You're already condemned because he's not believed in the son, name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Remember, what time of day? Night. This is the judgment. I could be wrong, but I think, again, John could correct me, but I think he, Jesus and Nicodemus talked into the night. And this conversation has happened right as dawn breaks. And that's why John tells it this way. The light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Whatever does what is true comes to the light. Who did Nicodemus come to? The light, Jesus. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now I'm going to throw something out at you. I want you to process it. Think about it. Um, you know me. I don't like to give you absolute answers. I would rather that you do homework and be processing this. Why in John 3.16 does either Jesus or John, whoever it is that writes for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, use that word only begotten in a conversation where Jesus is saying you must be born again. Jesus is the only born. You must be born again. Doesn't that create a paradox? How can I be born again if Jesus is the only born? How can I be born of God if Jesus is the only born of God? Because my salvation, my birth, the power of my transformation as a Christian is fully and completely buried in the person of Christ. My rebirth as a believer does not come about because of my great faith. My rebirth as a believer comes about because Jesus is the only begotten. See, we so often, even when we use the words born again in modern evangelicalism, we make it about my ability to make a confession of faith. My confession simply brings me into alignment with the reality, which is that Jesus is the only source of life. His birth is my rebirth. 
And I am born only because he is born. Look at the line. Whoever does, verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That it has been done in him. All right? I mean, people love the darkness, right? We get, there's lines all over the place. You are not condemned because you believe in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Over and over and over we get this idea, Jesus is the life of the believer. We are born of flesh and so we perish. We are earthly and so we waste away. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We are in darkness and we are condemned because of our darkness. We are not condemned because the light exists, but rather because we are in darkness. And yet Jesus is the Son of God. He does not perish, but has eternal life. He is the one who was born truly and completely by the Spirit, and so He is our birth in the Spirit. We are earthly and we decay. He is descended from heaven and He is forever. We are falling down. He is lifted up. We are in darkness. He is the light. We must believe He is the one who testifies the truth that we must accept. Without Jesus, we are nothing. Without Jesus, the church is just an annoying social club that throws potlucks. Without Jesus, the Bible is just a book about ancient history. Without Jesus, our religion is no better than the morality of anyone else. But with Jesus, we are everything. Or He is everything. Do we rely on our feeling of being born again for our spiritual confidence? Do we rely on our observance of Christian norms to call ourselves Christians? Do we rely on our outlined belief and doctrine and theology in order to say that we believe? Or do we rely on Jesus? My father, since today is Father's Day, I've quoted him twice. I'm going to quote him one more time. My father, when I was going through Bible college, um, and he knew me, um, he knew me better than anybody else because he was the one that was constantly bailing me out of getting suspended from school. Um, my, my father knew, knew me. He knew my behavior, my cynicism, my critical uh, things. I've told people before, I'm an atheist who can't get by, past Jesus. So there's a lot of stuff about Christianity that tends to bug me because it's not about Jesus. And I, I just get antsy around stuff that is the way we do it, not because of what Jesus said to do it, but because somebody else had said to do it. Um, but but uh, he knew me. And, one, and I came home from school one day, and I was really, really frustrated with all the methodology that was presented presented to me. Um, I've shared some of this to you guys in the past, but I was being told how to grow my church. And, and if I was going to pastor a church, this was the way you grew a church. And one of the things that was said particularly to me was, was whatever methodology uh, works to bring people in, that's what you should be doing. I mean, it really boiled down to that. I refer to it as the butts and seats principle. Um, people will just do whatever it is to get butts and seats in the church. 
And I was getting really frustrated with that because I had struggled to come back to a faith in Jesus. And here I was being told how to manipulate people into Jesus. I was being told things like, make sure you make friends with the funeral directors. That way you'll hear about the deaths before they're published in the obituaries and you can contact the people because that crisis of having lost a family member is the ideal time for you to sucker them into faith. And I was furious. And some of you have never seen me angry. Some of you have. It's not a pretty thing when hobbits lose their control. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was upset. I was angry. And my father, being my father, is sitting on the couch, I still remember to this day, flipping through channels. He's always flipping through channels. He's of that generation. He's got to have the TV on all the time. All right? And he's flipping through channels. And I said, I came home, I'm pacing. I'm like, I can't swear around my dad, so that's all you say. My dad leads back and he says to me, he says, son, he says, your methodology drives from your doctrine. Find out what you believe and do what you believe. I went, this guy got really smart between the time I was 18 and 22. Your Christology, what you believe about Jesus, drives your soteriology, what you believe about salvation. It drives your ecclesiology, what you believe about the church. It drives your bibliology, what you believe about the Bible. It drives your eschatology, what you believe about death and life and heaven and hell. Don't let anyone but Jesus define faith, including you. Let's have a word of prayer. It is a hard reality, Jesus, that we struggle. It is a truth that we gather sometimes wavering and struggling. Folks in this room, I know, Father, who long to know you. And yet religion and beliefs and worldviews and, and information and pop culture crowds out your son. Help us to see you, Jesus. To know the testimony of your spirit to be true. And to follow. To believe. To be born not of our own abilities, but Jesus, of your being and mystery and transcendent deity. For those of us that are followers of Christ already, Father, Holy Spirit, point us to him. Clear out the gunk and the plaque. For those of us who are still on the journey, Jesus, may your spirit testify of who you are and we might come to a time and place of faith in you, stumbling and tumbling toward you. May we all find faith in you, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. Transform, renew, invigorate us. We pray all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. The Lord bless you and...